Sourcing for Innovation podcast, episode three. My name is Adam Curtis, joined today by Robert Wingler, project manager here at Catalyte. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. We're going to talk today about project management anti-patterns. Now, we're going to get into seven of them, I believe, later on, talk through them a little bit. But before we get into the specific details, why don't we just, for our audience, uh, do a level set here and get on the same page as to what exactly is an anti-pattern? What are we talking about today? Well, that's a great question. Anti-patterns, obviously, are the opposite of patterns. And patterns are common solutions to common problems. The anti-pattern is a common solution to a common problem that doesn't work. Uh, you might want to think of it as best practices versus worst practices, where best practices would be patterns and worst practices would be anti-patterns. Best practices you want to practice most of the time. Anti-patterns and worst practices I assume you want to practice none of the time. Is that possible? It's possible, uh, but very difficult because the anti-pattern appears to be an obvious solution. Uh, but oftentimes when they're employed, they create more problems than they solve. So if they look like an obvious solution, how then can you go in and sort of ID or find them and then eliminate them from your organization? Well, the number one way to identify them is through experience, sadly. Uh, you know, how do we learn from our mistakes? First, we have to make the mistake. How you would go about rooting them out once you identify them, though, is to then employ the best practices, uh, which would be the antithesis of the anti-patterns. So the antidote for the anti-pattern is the best practice put into play. Exactly. That's going to be a nice motivational poster somewhere. <laughs> I'll put that up in the office. Um, now, before again, before we get into these seven, the uh, can we call them the seven deadly anti-patterns? I really feel like that's a good branding technique here for it. I, I think that would be fine, except that there are a lot more than seven. We just okay. don't have that kind of time. All right, well, we'll deal with seven today. But really, what are the harms of anti-patterns? I know we'll get into specific ones here, but just overall, if you are employing anti-patterns, how is that uh, hurting your organization? Well, for one, uh, the, the most common problem that they create rather than solve is that they slow down your throughput. They slow down your velocity. They impede your progress. And the, the biggest harm is the fact that most of the time you don't discover this until you've been using the anti-pattern for quite some time. And so you've wasted time, effort, and capital trying to solve a problem when in fact you're not solving it and only making it worse. It sounds like it can maybe even metastasize into becoming your culture. Can you have a culture that's just made up of anti-patterns without you even really knowing it? Absolutely, you can. I've been in several organizations where they've employed these anti-patterns, and I, I can say that now looking back, hindsight 2020, uh, but looking back on it, their answer to every problem was to you know, hammer home these anti-patterns, and they could never understand why they weren't getting ahead. Got it. So you become sort of blinded. You just, you're living it every day. You figure that's the only way to go about it until you can step back and realize, oh, that was not the way to go about it. That was the wrong way to go about it. Precisely. All right. So the seven we're going to get into today, I'm just going to name them off real quick, and then we'll go through them each. Uh, seven basic anti-patterns that pretty much everyone has encountered at some point during their career. Uh, cart before the horse, death march, the 99 rule, over-engineering, and then we have also scope creep, smoke and mirrors, and Brooks Law. So cart before the horse, that's a fairly familiar idiom with most of us, but how does that apply here to a, a project management anti-pattern? 
Well, the car before the horse, uh, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's from that old axiom. The idea is that you're focusing on what you believe are, is the most important part of your project before what is actually the most important part of your project. So you're investing, again, time, manpower, capital into trying to achieve something only to find out at the end that you focused on the wrong portion. Now, is this based mostly on just a gut reaction? You're getting ready to do a project and just without maybe doing a lot of preparation or planning or research, you're just like, this part. This part's the most important, and then everyone focuses on that without really figuring it out. Well, that's probably not the most important part. That's exactly what happens a lot of the time. Uh, it, if anything, you're over-enthusiastic, and normally there's no problem with that. We want enthusiasm. We want excitement around our projects. But unless we're able to take a step back, maybe get an outside opinion from a consultant, uh, we, we end up uh, succumbing to our own naivete and, and not being able to identify what's really important about a project. Is the cart in this situation often the most shiny object, maybe the most fun thing to do in the project? It might not be the groundwork you need to lay to get to that point. But is that sometimes an issue, too, that you put the cart before the horse because it's the thing that might be the most fun to do on a project? Absolutely. Uh, from a developer standpoint, it would definitely be what, what is most fun or what is innovative. From a, a, an organizational standpoint, a profitable standpoint, it, a lot of times it's the key feature that we believe will make us the most money uh, and will, will give us the most uh, return on our investment. Uh, but as you said earlier, without doing some of the groundwork, we can't get to that point. A uh, prime example would be developing features that are designed to be behind a paywall without first designing that paywall. Yeah, how are people even going to access it? Are they going to have the opportunity or the motivation to pay to get to that stuff behind the paywall? You have to create that enticement first, I guess you should say. Exactly. Number two in anti-patterns, Death March. I mean, that just, that just sounds bad <laughs> right from the start. That's, that's not a good name. If you're doing anything with death in it, probably not uh, going to be a successful project. You're absolutely right. And the, the death march, if you ever speak to a gambler, uh, the idea here is that you're sending in good money after bad. You're, you're working on a project, and the management team recognizes the project's going to fail for whatever reason. It, not necessarily that budgets are going to be blown or deadlines are going to be missed, but maybe there won't be any adoption for the product at the end of it. Uh, the market has changed. There's no longer a need for this to be developed. However, we've sunk so much into it already, we might as well finish it. The problem here comes in with your team. It, it's a morale killer. If your team knows they are banging away, trying to get something done that's never going to be used or is going to be looked at as a failure of their efforts, they don't want to work on it. That will definitely drag down their productivity. It'll drag down their morale. Nobody wants this. And then, of course, you're still spending time and money trying to finish this project. Uh, when th What should really be done in that case is to cut your losses. Take the remaining funds, take the remaining effort, and invest in something that is going to be useful and deemed a success. Now, what stops people from doing that at the, the managerial level? Is it ego? Is it that they don't want to be assigned blame to them for a project to fail? How do you get beyond those two impediments to, again, making that call, like, cut our losses, let's get on to something better that will work? I don't know that it would, it's so much ego. I honestly think it's fear. It comes out of a lot of cultures in organizations where 
the the managerial team or or the stakeholders that see that the project is doomed for failure are not empowered to speak up to those with the decision-making ability to end the project. And so they know that they've been given an instruction to finish the project without that ability to give feedback to where it could do the most good. It sounds like this is almost the antithesis to the the adage, fail fast. This is failing slow. You want to get away from that. And if you see something is doomed for whatever reason, again, cut your losses, move on. Very good point. Number three, the 99 rule. Now, we're not talking about income disparity here. Are you like (laughs) the one percenters in software development? No, 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 not at all. Uh, The 99 rule is very interesting. It's found most often in non-agile projects, uh, traditionally waterfall. And uh, while there is a a time and a place to do waterfall, uh, it does have its drawbacks, which is why agile developed um, in, in that chaos. The 99 rule is where you've completed 99% of a project, and that's just for numbers sake. And so the remaining effort for the remaining work is underestimated. You've looked back and look how far we've come on a project. Clearly the last 1% won't take as long, or we already have everything we know about. But that doesn't mean that the last 1% isn't a brand new feature, just because it's small in comparison to the project as a whole. And so uh, we, we oftentimes get towards the end of a project and say, well, maybe we can move up our release date. We can get to market early. We don't have that much more left to do. And then plans are thrown by the wayside. So is this an expectation anti-pattern or a release planning anti-pattern or a little bit of both? I'd say probably a little bit of both. Uh, it really comes, again, from some over-enthusiasm. Again, we're so close. We're almost done. Clearly, we can get that last little bit done, and and therefore, we, we don't see what's really in front of us. I think that anyone who's ever watched the NCAA tournament basketball game knows about this. You watch you know, the first, what, 38 minutes, and the last two minutes always seems to take 40 minutes to play. You're right there at the end, but there's so much stuff to do at the end of the game. In that case, timeouts, strategical um, analysis from coaches trying to get the best matchups, defense versus offense of the floor. For projects like that, again, you've gone some way. You're like, okay, finally. But that last little bit to get to the finish is always the difficult part. Absolutely. And, you know, I started off with this explanation talking about a little bit between uh, the difference between waterfall and agile and how you find this more in a waterfall project. And the reason for that is if you're doing agile, you are constantly estimating the work that's right in front of you. And so as long as your team is following whatever process they, they're supposed to be using, whether that be Kanban, XP, Scrum, any of those uh, estimation tools, that uh, their estimations should be fairly accurate, especially by the time we get to the last 1% of the project. Uh, but in a, a waterfall situation, we don't have that. And oftentimes in waterfall, we save the risky part of the project until the end, whereas in Agile, the risky stuff is done up front where we end up failing fast and not only avoid the 99 rule, but also avoid the death march as well. Two birds with one stone. We're done with them. We're moving on. Um, Over-engineering. This is the anti-pattern number four. For this one, I'm a little bit confused about because I think, again, conventional wisdom is that you should always try to build that better mousetrap. That's what's setting you apart from your competition but this kind of seems to say the opposite maybe go with what's already out there 
Well, I would say that, uh, to, not to mix metaphors, but it, there's a difference between building a better mousetrap and reinventing the wheel. Got it. A prime example, a, a colleague of mine was developing a, an electronic cookbook for him and his wife to keep track of. They're, they're foodies. They love to cook. And the first thing he set about doing was creating this very complex login page with uh, usernames and encryption on passwords you know, because that's what he knew how to do. That sounds like overkill. It's exactly what it was. When he looked at it, uh, taking a step back, he realized it was just going to be him and his wife using this. Uh, even, even if some... they, they can't steal our borscht recipe. <laughs> exactly. There was no sensitive data being stored. There was no need for this uh, complex login system. And and his grandma might disagree. That recipe <laughs> has been in the family for years. Per, perhaps you know you, there are some things that uh, you know. You, you know, um, what, what's what's the term? Sentimental value yes. is just through the roof, can't be measured. But that's a prime example of just over-engineering. Something as simple as uh, CRUD functionality for creating a cookbook wouldn't take a developer very long, but when you start adding in all the bells and whistles that may or may not be needed, uh, that's what really takes up a lot of your time. So the, again, this goes back to, I think, a little bit of research, um, a little bit of due diligence in the beginning of it. So here's our final goal. What already exists out there that is going to speed up our time to get to that goal? Or can we reach that goal sort of, again, in an agile fashion um, as a, you know, an MVP versus, you know, using something that's out there and then iterate and add on to it to get it to that bright, shiny object that we want in the end? That's, that's a great, great way to explain what, what should be going on. Um, you know, I know in, a, in an enterprise project, you know, massive uh, size project that you're working on, if there is something off the shelf that you can use, not only is it going to get you to your MVP faster, but it's going to save you time and money. And really, that that's the goal. If you can make that profit while still uh, employing as little investment as possible, that's what we're all trying to do. It also helps, I think, developers focus more on those innovative aspects. They don't have to, again, as you said, reinvent the wheel each time. They can take something that exists and then make it better. Exactly. A better wheel. That's what we need to get on now. <laughs> uh, Anti-pattern number five, scope creep. This one seemed to me to be maybe the hardest one to prevent because this oftentimes involves client expectations uh, and someone who is paying you to do the job. So first of all, explain scope creep and then how do you balance those expectations of getting something done that the client is paying you to do while still covering your own behind and making sure you come out profitable in the end. Uh, it's a very complex question. You have I'll... two minutes. <laughs> That's longer than on Jeopardy, so I'll take it. Uh, so scope creep in and of itself is the exactly what you explained. You you have an understanding with your your customer or your stakeholders of we're going to create a project that has X, Y, and Z inside of it. Um, but then as the project gets started, either at the beginning, in the middle, or towards the end the other letters of the alphabet show up. We have to have A, B, and C, and someone has an idea for F. Um, and, and it's all deemed important and needed. Most important. Absolutely, Everything yes. is equally most important. Yes, that's why in a lot of times in, in Agile, I don't use the word prioritize because everything is top priority. I use the word order. Therefore, order means something has to come first and something has to come second. Uh, but with scope creep, it's not so much that you can avoid it happening. The great thing about projects, and especially software projects, is that they are innovative. They're, con they're fueled by new ideas. You encourage it. That's how you get that better mousetrap. 
a lot of times with scope creep, people try to prevent it, which creates more problems. We, we try to say, this is our scope, we want to hold that there. Which really you should be doing is trying to embrace the scope creep and manage it. And, and you do that uh, most oftentimes in, in modern projects by using an agile process. Just and, add it to the backlog and then reorder it from there. That's the very simple thing to do. Uh, you know, you have a deadline, you have only so much work that can get done between now and then. Uh, you have to be realistic. There's only so many ways you can get something done and, and only so many things you can get done. Now, the, the bigger picture there, though, is release planning. Just because something doesn't get done by the first release, that doesn't mean it's not available for version 2.0. And, and again, in, in a lot of times with software projects, we're trying to get to market first. We're trying to beat our competition and, and really uh, get our customer base going, get them excited about what we're building, and then tell them, by the way, if you like this, stick around. Sure. Number six on our anti-patterns list here, um, smoke and mirrors. Sounds kind of magical. Anti-patterns being the worst practice. This is the David Blaine to the David Copperfield best practice. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, not to insult Mr. Blaine, but you know, definitely a difference in how we get things done. So with smoke and mirrors, uh, this is borderline unethical. Um, and a lot of times I see this with inexperienced developers and teams. Uh, what happens here is they're up against a deadline. They get to a demo and they're in front of their stakeholders and they know that what they promise the stakeholders, it works, but not 100%. There's, there's a bug or it's not quite finished, but they can make it look as though it's done. And I, I don't believe that there's any malice intended here. No one's really trying to do anything wrong, but no one wants to sit in a meeting and admit that they missed the mark. Got it. So what they'll do is they'll present their demonstration in a way that makes it look like everything's working with the intent to go back and, and finish up after everyone's left the room. Pay no attention to the features behind the curtain. Exactly. Right. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen thing, everything from, uh, you know, clearing out a database right before the demo so that uh, we don't see that the data can't persist over itself um, to, you know, making sure that no one but the, the demonstrator has control of the mouse so the dead links aren't clicked on. It's, it's a common practice, um, but again, I, I don't think that anyone's trying to be in, intentionally evil here. Uh, the, the, the real crime of this, though, is that it will slow down your future output. Uh, we, whether you're doing Agile or Iterative Waterfall or anything, you, the idea is you've given a demo, you're saying these things are done, when you know you have to go back and fix them, the, going back and fixing them is going to take time and effort. So meanwhile, your stakeholders are expecting you to get new things done. Right, move on to phase step. two, and you're still working on phase one in secret. Exactly. And then even if you do get caught up with phase one, and you're not going to get phase two fully completed, which either means you have to do this again, or you have to admit that you didn't get everything in phase two done, and people are going to start asking why. It sounds like just a communication issue up front, and these are, as you said, hard conversations to have that in some way you failed or didn't deliver what you said you did, but it's better to become clean now rather than have your you know, throughput and productivity just spiral downwards for the rest of the project. Exactly, because when you do that and you admit we didn't meet the mark this time, 
the questions then become, well, why not? What is going on? And perhaps you're the victim of another anti-pattern. Um, and you need to find that out. Last one here, Brooks Law, which I'll let you explain, but seems to be the catch-22 of software development and project management anti-patterns, right? Absolutely it is. Uh, it, it is, in my opinion, the, the most obvious anti-pattern because it's the one most often missed, if that makes any sense at all. And I'm sure it will after you explain <laughs> it. Uh, as we said before, anti-patterns are, are looked at as uh, obvious solutions that don't really work. Uh, with Brooks Law, the idea is we have a team performing on a project and their velocity, their throughput, is either slowing down or is not what the stakeholders were, were hoping for. And so what is the answer when you have 10 people on a project and they're not getting enough done? Add another 10 people. But in fact, that's the wrong answer. Take away 10 people. Not quite. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's not the exact opposite. Uh, but with Brooks Law, the idea is you're adding more and more resources to a project in order to uh, accelerate it or improve its performance, and the exact opposite happens. We end up taking more away by adding more resources. And there are a number of reasons for this. And I've been on projects where this has happened. Uh, I, you know, before I became a project manager, I was a developer, so I've seen these unfold. Uh, we had a project where there were 20 people on a scrum team, which anyone who knows anything about scrum will tell you already, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, bells and whistles are going off right now. Exactly. Um, and, and the answer to why are we not getting a lot of uh, points put away was let's add more people to it. So now we're up to 25 people on the team. What happens, though, is communication breaks down. You have your daily meetings or or however often you're having your status meetings, and you've got 25 people sitting in a room, or even worse, sitting on the phone, not even looking at each other, and everyone's just waiting for their opportunity to talk, and they know that they're not going to remember what anybody else said, and no one's going to remember what they said either. Uh, and then you have managerial staff looking down at this monolithic team, trying to figure out where the choke points are, where can we improve process, but there's so much going on, they can't break it down, it. and they end up missing what's actually going on. So it sounds like maybe it's not necessarily bad to add more resources, just how you allocate them, is that correct? Like maybe you break it up, don't have everyone on one team, but to segment a project out and keep it small and distributed? That, that will work as well. Uh, that is kind of the answer to, to this problem, is if you have a large enough project where you're thinking about adding more and more resources to it, they can't all be working on the same thing at once. There's, there's just no way. So what you want to do is break them up into different teams. Break your backlog up into epics that can be segmented out. And the cool thing about that is, as they all start working on their individual portions of this, and they go further and further down the line, you may be able to peel some people off of each team and then eventually come together as one team of the correct size because a lot of the other work has already been done. And there, there's no crime in that. So we've gone through the seven here. Again, I'll reiterate uh, real quickly. We had Brooks Law, Smoke and Mirrors, Scope Creep, Overengineering, the 99 Rule, Death March, and Cart Before the Horse. Each of these is a little bit different, but it seemed to me that communication really is the answer to try to stave off if not all of these most of these talk with your you know team talk with your stakeholders talk with 
other project managers just to see like, hey, am, am I incorporating one of these anti-patterns here? Because when you're so in the weeds and so sort of focused, it's sometimes really hard to see these things. Absolutely. Uh, I have a background in communication, uh, mass communication is, is what my degree is in. And I can tell you that it's one of the fundamental flaws of uh, our society in general and not, not pointing any generation out or anything like that. But communication is not something that humans are very good at. Uh, it makes us uncomfortable. It exposes what we're thinking. Uh, it exposes our weaknesses sometimes. Who wants to admit they don't know why their project is failing? Uh, however, the more we communicate, the, the more information we can then get and analyze what's going on. Robert Winkler, project manager who doesn't employ anti-patterns ever. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to just raise you up. You are the anti-anti-pattern project manager. Thank you. Robert, thank you so much.